You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and fear health and nutrition is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Last July, I spoke with Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, about his son, Jonathan. In 2017, Jonathan died of a fentanyl overdose during his freshman year of college. Admiral Winnefeld has since been a vocal advocate for opioid death prevention. He now heads the Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic, or SAFE Project US, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending the opioid epidemic in the United States. Parts of my interview with Admiral Winnefeld can be heard on the first episode of our special mini-series on the American opioid epidemic, which was released last month. You can listen to the first episode. It started with a letter on Take as Directed. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Sandy. Maybe we could start by having you talk about your son, Jonathan, and his struggle with anxiety and depression and addiction and your own experiences in attempting to cope with that. Thank you, and thank you for having me on on the program. Um, Jonathan grew up as the younger of two sons in a military family that moved around, as you can imagine, quite a lot. He, at one point, was in five different school districts in six years. And while his older brother thrived on that and would sometimes ask, you know, when are we moving again? Uh, Clearly, uh, Jonathan was uncomfortable with that. Uh, He was a very bright kid, uh, had a very high brain processing speed, as we found out when we had him tested. Very creative, very good baseball pitcher, very polite kid, didn't have an enemy in the world. But he was, in fact, suffering from anxiety and depression, as it became apparent to us as he <clears throat> grew up. That was uh, probably the result of a number of things. It could have been hereditary. It could have been environmental. You know, we just don't know. But the fact is that John was quiet and anxious and not very self-confident. We um, also found ourselves in a situation where he was misdiagnosed as being attention deficit. And we had him tested early on, and he did not uh, come back positive for that. But uh, as he got older and older, it's sort of such an accepted thing now, and I think there are probably pharmaceutical companies pushing this, but he was eventually uh, diagnosed in junior high school or early in high school with having attention deficit, and and we finally gave in and and agreed to have him... uh, get a prescription for Adderall, which is a methamphetamine, which is probably the worst thing you can give somebody who has anxiety, as we now know in retrospect. And what we soon discovered was that Jonathan was self-medicating for his anxiety and depression. It started with uh, alcohol and marijuana, proceeded into benzodiazepines, Xanax. And we did not know 
but uh, in hindsight, we uh, suspect, of course, that he was also experimenting with opiates, in, including heroin. <clears throat> uh, we discovered his use of alcohol when we saw alcohol disappearing from our own shelf, and uh, my spouse, Mary, confronted him with this, and he was very open. He said, look, I've got I've to have this in order to come down at night from the Adderall. Uh, so one thing led to another, and if, if there are really three pathways into an opioid addiction, one being an overprescription for a medical procedure, a dental procedure, something like that, another being what we would call the party path, uh, John was on the third path, and that is self-medication for uh, a mental disorder, and in his case, anxiety and depression. And so that's what led him into the downward spiral of addiction that eventually claimed his life. So tell us a bit about once you've re- reached this point where you, you, you recognize that he's suffering from this uh, dual um, a diagnosis of anxiety, depression, and, and addiction, uh, you then run into, you then begin to seek treatment options and you, you're dealing with the TRICARE, the realities of what's, what's available uh, in terms of insurance, but also what's available in, in terms of the cost and the, uh, and the proximity of, of, of adequate treatment facilities. So you enter that whole experience. Tell us a bit about the, how that unfolded. Well, we were initially, I guess in the end game, focused on his anxiety and depression that was leading to substance abuse. It wasn't so much focused on what we thought of as an addiction. We didn't really think of him as being addicted at the time. We just knew that he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing in order to compensate. So we had him uh, in counseling. We ultimately had him talk to a psychiatrist who was able to get more out of Jonathan than than, uh, the counseling folks got. And we started to think about getting him into uh, intensive outpatient treatment for his anxiety and depression and substance abuse. Uh, and because there was a waiting list, um, we were not able to get him into that before. He had sort of a cataclysmic event where he tried to take his own life. He ended up uh, driving around at night. Uh, he was uh, obviously high and uh, ran into a telephone pole and mercifully was not at all seriously injured. But it was at that point that we said, enough is enough. We can't keep him safe at home. We have to get him into some kind of long pay- long-term inpatient treatment. And it's at that point that so many families, ours included, have sort of a crisis where you know, you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know where to send your child. Uh, you don't even know what's available out there. Uh, and this is one of the things we're going to try to address in our nonprofit project, which we can get into in a little bit. But my wife ended up spending a week in a hotel in Richmond where Jonathan was in a psych ward to detox because there was nothing available in the Washington, D.C. area. And she's frantically calling around. And she discovered that TRICARE did not comprehend the uh, phenomenon of dual diagnosis or comorbidity, they call it, of uh, mental health and addiction. You have to treat those two together if they're present or it doesn't do much good to treat either one. The other phenomenon that we ran into at the same time was that Jonathan was within three weeks of his 18th birthday. And there are a lot of places out there who will only take adolescents who will, would not take Jonathan because he's too close to his 18th birthday. There are other places out there who, that will only take adults who wouldn't take him because he had not crossed his 18th birthday yet. So we really searched around. We were very fortunate to run across a friend who recommended a place in Pennsylvania to us that was not going to be covered by a military health care. We had already given up on that. 
but that we knew we could get Jonathan to a safe place, and we ended up uh, paying for his treatment out of pocket. What did that, may I ask, what did that amount to in terms of out-of-pocket costs? I'm just curious. In 15 months of inpatient treatment at two good locations, we paid over $300,000. So you can sort of put that into context. That's about what it costs to get a four-year education at the best Ivy League school you can think of Right. uh, in 15 months. But we would obviously spend twice, four times that if we came up with the resources, if we could have our son back. And in fact, uh, the treatment worked really, really well. John was progressing very well through that. We saw our son coming back to us. We saw his brain recovering. We were able to have a conversation with him. We saw his ambition return. He got his emergency medical technician qualification uh, in the latter, um, say, third of that time. Mm-hmm. He was very excited about that, wanted to be a paramedic fireman, wanted to help other people. So the treatment worked. What failed was the transition out of treatment into long-term recovery out back out into society. And there are a lot of lessons learned that come out of that. But Which John is Stanford, always a acutely vulnerable and delicate transition. Why don't you say a bit about what you think occurred in that process? Well, we brought Jonathan out of his a long-term treatment with a step-down program to get him to where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to college. He wanted to study criminology uh, and have that lead into becoming a paramedic fireman. So we sp- took him to uh, the mountains for two weeks. Very good time. He went to a few uh, uh, Al-Anon meetings and that sort of thing, and he was doing well. And then the state of Colorado said, we'd like for you to have your EKG qual if you're going to practice as an EMT in Colorado, because Jonathan wanted to work on the side of his college education, partly to stay out of trouble, partly to do something he enjoyed doing, and partly to make some money. So we said, hey, that's perfect. We'll send him to night school the last two weeks before school starts at uh, Denver University uh, and get that clause. It was downtown in Denver from 6 to 10 o'clock at night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, at a wonderful paramedic training facility they have down there in Denver. It also happens to be very closely located to Denver's outdoor heroin market that functions from about 10 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning. And Jonathan was walking back to uh, where he was staying at a relative's house and was offered heroin, and it's very difficult for somebody who's, who's in recovery, particularly at that very vulnerable time, to turn something like that down. And so he relapsed, unbeknownst to us. And we didn't even know, frankly, that Jonathan had a, an opioid problem. We thought it was a, an, an alcohol and marijuana and benzodiazepine problem. Mm-hmm. We were not aware that it was a, a, a heroin problem. Now, when you have been in long-term treatment for 15 months, your opioid receptors in your brain have have time to heal themselves, to reset, to become desensitized. But that makes you acutely vulnerable to an overdose because if you take the same dose of, of the drug that that you needed in order to both get high and avoid withdrawal, when you are deeply addicted, it can saturate those receptors very quickly and kill you. And that's exactly what happened to Jonathan. Well, thank you for uh, for sharing that. And and, um, our uh, uh, sincere condolences, I mean, for this tragic loss. And I know you're approaching that one-year mark. One thing that is most impressive about this story is the degree to which, I mean, first, just listening to you, the your honesty and candor and, and, and in-depth 
sort of insights into into what was happening um, uh, for such a profoundly personal loss, and then and subsequently the degree to which you have turned this into a, a set of very promising initiatives. I mean, your writing in the Atlantic was, I thought, very powerful. You've become highly activist in um, uh, dealing with uh, different launching different initiatives having to do with college students, having to do with drug courts, having to do with law enforcement. And you now have this this new entity, the Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic Safe Project. You asked, could you tell us a bit about the role that you you and your wife have assumed in this period? Uh, sure. We shortly after we lost Jonathan, and we were getting emails from people offering flowers or money or what have you. We decided that we had a choice. We could either crawl into a little ball of shame, guilt, and grief which I do not begrudge anyone in this circumstance uh, doing. Uh, it's what your natural instinct is. Or with uh, 37 years in the military, knowing how to get things done, uh, a good, powerful network of friends who could be supportive, uh, help uh, put our arms on the oar, as it were, and row along with a number of other great people out there trying to reverse this epidemic and do our part. And we decided to do that. It is a big decision. Because you know that you're going to now be exposing yourself to a daily reminder of what has happened to you. But we felt it was very important that we do it. And that one of the most important things in overcoming this epidemic is is conquering stigma. And that we were not going to be stigmatized by this. And that perhaps if we stood up and talked about it openly and freely, that perhaps uh, it would be another way of advancing the country's understanding that this is a disease, not a moral failing. So... We started uh, to think about how we wanted to organize this entity <clears throat> between mid-September and the end of November is when we sort of started getting our act together, <clears throat> accepting a few donations and and uh, building a, a website and writing the article and, and, and setting up a few media appearances and, <clears throat> and the like, and rolled it out on the 29th of November. And we decided to structure the organization around the six things that we believe the nation needs to do in order to counter this epidemic. And they're very closely interrelated, but they're also distinct enough that we can program to them. <clears throat> and I'll go through those in a moment. But we also roll those six things up into two major thrusts, which we call safe communities and safe campuses. But the six lines of operation, sort of classic military planning, I guess, <laughs> um, are uh, public awareness to uh, hopefully get the support for the resources this country is going to need to reverse this epidemic and to lower stigma. The second one is full-spectrum prevention, which is about speaking with credible voices to the most vulnerable audiences. And in fact, at, when we're finished with this interview, I'm literally driving to talk to a 13-year-old baseball team, all-star baseball team, and a 14-year-old all-star baseball team this evening. Um, so it's about reaching those audiences, and we're most effective when we have somebody who's lost someone and also someone who's in recovery speaking sort of sequentially to the same audience. The third line of operations, prescription medicine, uh, which is in a way the source of this whole epidemic. There's so much that needs to be done in that space from holding um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry sectors of it accountable to uh, convincing doctors and dentists that they need to be more responsible in their prescription processes 
Hospitals can do a better job of warning patients. <clears throat> patients can be better educated about what the hazards are, <clears throat> take back programs, whole host of <clears throat> activities in that um, sector. The fourth line of operation is uh, law enforcement and medical response. Uh, this is about drug courts. It's about mm -hmm. uh, pre-arrest programs. It's about what happens to people in jail. It's about the justice system and holding the right people accountable. You know, we can't arrest our way out of this by arresting users, but we certainly can go after dealers. Uh, and also having police and first responders carrying the overdose reversing drug naloxone. The fifth line of operation is treatment and recovery. There's simply not enough capability in this country for treatment and recovery. It's not affordable enough. The insurance companies don't want to pay for it. So we're working hard in that area, and our, our principal line of effort there is to write a web application <clears throat> that gives people a better chance of connecting their own uh, particular characteristics as a drug-dependent person to a treatment facility that's right for them. And this speaks back to this crisis period I mentioned a little bit ago about not knowing you know, who's out there, what's the right place to send my loved one. And the last one is family outreach and support. And that is about if we only knew then what we know now, we would still have our son. And that, that stretches all the way back to elementary school, through junior high school, through when you suspect that a loved one might actually be using, uh, to when things start to get very rough, to when the person is in treatment. And all too importantly, as we've talked about already, that transition out of treatment and into long-term recovery. So lessons learned, making those discoverable so other people can benefit from our loss. So that's that. And then the Safe Communities and Safe Campuses piece, we're partnering with an organization called the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. We've got a lot of good things going on to try to raise all boats on college campuses because, frankly, some colleges uh, do a very good job with this. Texas Tech, Baylor, Rutgers, some of those. And some do not do such a good job. So we're going to try to raise all boats there. And then Safe Communities is about helping communities that want to stand up and take this epidemic on helping them get organized in their own way. They don't want to be told what to do, but uh, helping them get the right stakeholders involved, getting the meat eaters to talk to the leaf eaters, uh, presenting them with a menu pretty much aligned along our six lines of operation with the things that they can do if they choose to, to help reverse the opioid epidemic, and uh, and just helping them get started. So that, that's in a big mouthful uh, what we are up to. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, we're moving as quickly as we can. Well, it's most impressive, and uh, congratulations in what you've been able to achieve in such a remarkably short period of time. Uh, I just want to add, you know, over the past couple of years, we've uh, done a variety of different activities here at CSIS in Washington pertaining to the opioid um, epidemic. And one of the things that we've done is venture forth to eastern Kentucky and to New Hampshire and Massachusetts and to Wisconsin and, and conducted consultations with a whole spectrum of different people who are operating along those six different lines of operation that, that you laid out. Um, and it has been very clear across, across those experiences that we've had how much energy and activism and initiative is underway in the midst of this crisis to push back. And... Um, and and how essential all of that is to having an effective response. Um, 
So congratulations to you, and it's and it's really quite inspiring what you have laid out. If I could ask you a few questions in terms of what you what will success look like in your mind for what you're doing personally? Um, you know, in the next several years, um, obviously this epidemic is the arc has not turned on it. CDC, we spoke this week with uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield was here uh, for a dinner focused on polio and in talking with him about uh, the epidemic, the opioid epidemic, which is one of his top priorities. He indicated, well, we will soon be issuing new national data and it's not going to be happy data. Um, it is going to be rather alarming. So we haven't turned a corner. We haven't bent the arc of this epidemic. And so people like yourselves are going to be essential in moving forward. I just, as a strategist, as someone who is thinking strategically, what will success look like for you personally in all of the different endeavors that you're pushing out right now? Well, you're asking a really important question. And in this business, it's very hard to measure the output of a single organization. It's easy to measure the input, but it's hard to measure the output of a single organization. So the approach that I'm taking is sort of threefold. One, we are going to measure our input, as it were, in that how many people are we reaching? Uh, how many communities are we reaching? How many hospitals do we persuade to put up the right kind of signage so that patients are presented with the, the notion they ought to talk to their doctor about, you know, opioids? Uh, a whole host of measuring our activity, hopefully focused in the right areas to make sure that we are actually doing everything that we can when we wake up every day and say, how can we save a life? That's point one. Point two is something that we, that we really can't measure directly, and that is uh, our own in, our own contribution to what hopefully will be the reversal of this tide that you're talking about. Uh, if we see that arc bending, we see it bending in places where we've been, um, perhaps a community that we help, where we can measure actual outcomes uh, in a particular community that we've helped. That will be very useful, but of course, overall, nationally, we want to see that arc bend. And we'll just take some pride in, in, in knowing that hopefully we had something to do with that. The third thing is really sort of a qualitative output measurement. And that is, you know, when you get an email from somebody that starts, I'm sitting in a hospital emergency room right now with my 14-year-old son who is addicted to opioids. And we've decided we're going to take control of this thing and we're going to get him into long-term inpatient treatment. And the reason we're here is because we read your stuff. That makes you sit up and say, okay, I can keep doing this. I think we're going to make a difference. And we do have those anecdotal pieces uh, where people have told us that, that we have impacted their lives, that we have convinced them that they need to do something, take some kind of action in one of those lines of operation. Uh, and and that, that sort of keeps us going. So it's a, it's a tough a question to answer, but we're focused on that every day, trying to have a positive, measurable outcome on this crisis. I'm also struck that you've, you know, you've put uh, an emphasis on colleges. Um, obviously, your son was at the beginning of his college experience when he passed. And colleges struggle, I think, to figure out what they need, what more they need to do to be better equipped for this. Are you feeling like the moment's ripe in your own, in your own experience 
ripe to engage the leadership of colleges and universities to really sit up and pay attention in a new and different way? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I'll tell you, I was just down in Houston, I think I mentioned at a, a conference of the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. And I, I, I wrote an email to the chancellor of the university where we lost our son, because clearly um, there we do not blame at all the loss of our son on this college. It's not their fault, but there are some things that they could have been doing better. So we've been, you know, engaged with them, prodding, that sort of thing. And I got a terrific email back from the chancellor uh, at Denver University, and it sounds like they are all in, like they really want to make a difference here. And, and there are other schools and colleges across the country that are standing up that are deciding to do this. Not enough yet, but the, the momentum is in the right direction. And we're working every day to try to get more colleges and universities doing that. And in fact, uh, just to put in the finishing touches on an op-ed, still not sure where I'm going to publish it, but the title is essentially why you should care whether or not the son, the college your son or daughter is going to have a collegiate recovery program, parentheses, even if your son or daughter is not on drugs. <clears throat> and there are about six reasons why it's important that these these colleges and universities have these programs, and I want parents to know about about that. And so hopefully you'll be reading that the details of that somewhere soon, and I'll be happy to forward it to you when it's Please, no, I'd, I would, I'd very much look forward to, to reading that. I mean, when you think about colleges and universities, over the last decade and longer, they've struggled with the dual problem of alcohol abuse and sexual abuse that are deeply intertwined. And you talk to any administrator uh, at, a, at a college or university, um, that's, it consumes an enormous amount of attention. And um, and so this this phenomenon, the, the arrival of the opioid epidemic and the special requirements that come with that um, is, a, is a new dimension to, uh, to institutions that are really have had to face substance abuse and, 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 and sexual abuse together in that climate with that population that is, as you point out, is sort of on the edge of becoming adults and then the early stages of becoming adults. You're exactly right. And, and the, the sexual harassment, sexual assault piece is awful. It needs to be taken on directly and firmly. The opioid crisis kills people uh, and also needs to be taken on directly and firmly. And of course, it's all enabled by alcohol and marijuana and and the sort of enabling drugs. But so it is. It's a tough uh, population. These young uh, men and women are still developing. Their their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. We like to describe that as a learning Ferrari with no brakes. And one of the addiction is a learned behavior. Uh, and and so <clears throat> trying to to put these uh, kids in a safe environment where there are recovery resources available to them if they need it, is just terribly important. And we're hopeful that we can get this momentum that you described uh, really strongly in the right direction where colleges stand up. And, you know, we'll know we win this thing when colleges no longer are uh, wary of putting a poster up that says, hey, if you need help, you know, go to recovery or whatever, because they're worried about, somebody touring with their high school junior seeing that poster and worrying that there maybe is a drug problem at this college. There's a drug problem at every college. And what I'd like for colleges to think is that parents are actually going to be reassured 
by seeing a poster like that. That this college gets it. That this college cares about its kids and uh, and their well health and well being. And so I want to send my kid to this school rather than you know thinking oh there's a drug problem I don't want to send them here. So a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, just as a, a quick anecdote, my daughter had graduated this spring from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and um, and we were interviewing the police chief in Madison uh, a year ago this time, uh, this last year, um, about the uh, arrival of heroin into into Madison, and and it had been a there had been a surge of of of, of delivery and the arrival of. Uh, what were Chicago-based distribution networks that had migrated up into Madison, and the um, over the fatalities and overdoses were were skyrocketing, and the affiliated other changes that were happening, and the police were extremely innovative in the programming and beginning their own drug courts um, and the like, and there were discoveries right in the midst of campus of um, enormous drug. Uh, drug um, uh, uh, stockpiles uh, that were really targeting the the campus, but the sense of arrival on campus was not very strong. In other words, this this was still seen as something as a phenomenon that existed largely outside the gates of the university, and the university was still predominantly, I think, concerned around alcohol and sexual abuse. Um, so it is a process, I think, of, of education and experience. It is. And, and drugs have never been more available on campus than they are now. And uh, it's, uh, it's something we've really got to be careful of because these are not your parents' drugs. Uh, you know, marijuana is so much more strong than it used to be. Uh, obviously, the opioids were never an issue. And these things can kill you where these kids' parents never really had to worry too much about that. They were just going to get you in trouble. May I ask you just, we, we've gone on now for um, a little over 30 minutes. Um, uh, may I ask you two uh, closing questions? One is, you haven't mentioned marijuana much. Um, are you taking a stand in your own work um, against the legalization of recreational use? Because, of course, this is a big subject of debate nationally. Um, and um, I just wanted to ask you, since... It is. It figures in some of your writing as part of the story. Are you? What is your thinking right now on that question? Uh, truth be told, we're taking a very cautious approach to that. We, on the one hand, know that our son was addicted to marijuana. The the marijuana lobby does not want you to think that possible, but believe me, it is. And it was definitely a gateway drug for Jonathan. Uh, on the other hand. Just like opioids, we think there may be a place for medical marijuana. Uh, so our approach has been to not alienate half the world that believes marijuana, recreational marijuana should be legalized, but to perhaps put something in that says maybe it ought to have a 25-year-old limitation rather than a 21-year-old limitation because the brain is still developing and marijuana does, in fact, inhibit brain development. That's a fact, scientific fact. Uh, costs a few IQ points. Uh, so we are being careful with that. Uh, frankly, we lost our son. Uh, we attribute a good bit of that to the fact that he was a marijuana user. So yes. it's, it's a tough one. Okay. And, and the stuff is so powerful now compared to what it used to be. Um, let me ask you a, a closing question, which is about uh, our current 
national response to the opioid epidemic. Um, President Trump uh, put together the commission um, on the opioid crisis um, that completed its work last year. Uh, we hosted uh, Dr. Madras here, one of the commissioners and lead authors of that report. Um, there's been various announcements. Congress has become exceedingly active. We've had major uh, increases in budget commitments. We had the 21st Century Cures Act at the very close of the Obama administration, which 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 um, made substantial increases. So there has been movement. We have a new director put forward to the Hill for confirmation, Jim Carroll, to head up the White House Office on National Drug Control Policy. Um, and Secretary Azar has become very active, uh, Dr. Redfield at CDC, very active, Scott Gottlieb at FDA. So um, there's no lack of, of evidence of seriousness of purpose and action and the like within both the executive and Congress. From where you sit, how are we doing and what more needs to happen in your view? Well, we need to be doing a lot more. On, on the one hand, I do applaud uh, President Trump for standing up and talking about this uh, publicly last October 26th. I, I do worry a little bit about some of the messaging, sort of just don't start messaging, which I think when you're one inch deep into a very, very complicated crisis, it's it's easy to fall into that sort of simple solution. But uh, as everybody should know, uh, choice is a very abstract concept in the opioid epidemic, particularly when the doctors are prescribing this stuff to people. So, uh, um, so, but there's a positive there that they're standing up and talking about it. I haven't seen the kind of action that I would like to see. I think that the Christie Commission did a really good job. I think it's the most important thing that Governor Christie will do in his entire public career. Now we need to get some of those things implemented, and that's just not going fast enough. I think there are some people in the administration, particularly department heads and the like, uh, you know, ONDCP, uh, Health and Human Services and the like, who are really committed to getting this done. But it's going to take more funding, more effort, and the other thing that's really important to understand is that the, the, the federal government can do a lot with funding and policies and needs to. Uh, more needs to be done. State governments can do an awful lot, and many of these state governments are really stepping up to the challenge. But this will ultimately be solved at the community level. Communities standing up with all of these lines of operation together, all of their stakeholders uh, singing the same uh, music. And then we've got a fighting chance to get this thing fixed. It's going to take all hands on deck working together. It's not a public health crisis. It is a national emergency, and that's the way we can treat it. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to close by saying a couple of things. One is um, how deeply sorry we are for the loss of your son, Jonathan. And um, secondly, uh, to thank you for your, ser your service to our country and your 37 years of service at the highest levels, um, up to the highest levels. And thank you for the leadership and, and determination and commitment that you've made um, in, in this last period, um, which is quite remarkable and terribly important. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking time today to share those thoughts with us. Well, you're very welcome. And I appreciate being on the program. Uh, I, I will say that 
they tell you in the second half of your life you should find a way to give back. Not giving back in this way. With a constant background noise and sadness when you lose somebody to this crisis. But it is what it is, and we're going to we're not going to stop until we see this thing turning the tide, and, and uh, we're just very dedicated to it, and we appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Take as Directed. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. Tune into our program's new mini-series dedicated to examining the opioid epidemic. It breaks down the many factors that led to this national public health crisis. If you want to learn more about upcoming events in our work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page.